0: Well, that's kind of abrupt, right? One minute elf, and everything's light, and then one minute, boom, darkness, and everything's pretty heavy. Well, that's the way life is sometimes, isn't it? I think that's even the way Christmas is sometimes. Sometimes we're just moving along, and everything's holly jolly, and then life hits, and suddenly all the holly jolly is removed, and it's really quite sad, heavy, and grieving, as a matter of fact, we don't like to talk about sad things at Christmas. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking about the challenge of the message today because there's a part of me that just wants to talk about the holly jolly all the time. And yet I know that in this season of the year, life is sometimes hard. And sometimes it's tough. Sometimes we even get to the place that we dread Christmas because we know that we're about to get trounced. Maybe with emotion. Maybe with fear. Maybe with anxiety, even depression. But it might help you to know that there's nothing new to us. As a matter of fact, the Christmas story has within it, tucked within it, some pretty drastic and sad situations. We've called this series the Missing Characters of Christmas, and we've been talking for weeks now about some Christmas characters that you're not going to find in the Christmas narrative. You're not going to. I'm sorry, in the Christmas Nativity. Your nativity sets are not going to have these characters, probably, unless you've got a really weird nativity set. You're probably not going to find them tucked around a stable with straw and with a manger and all the things that we might think about with Christmas. And yet, they are vital to the Christmas story. For example, we started off by talking about a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. You remember that? Zechariah and Elizabeth. I've never seen them in a nativity set, and yet they're crucial to the story. Zechariah and Elizabeth had a young boy born just before Jesus. Zechariah and Elizabeth were used of God to encourage Mary. I really believe that when Mary came for a visit when she was pregnant with the Lord. And then we saw Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby born and Zechariah riding out in the sand or on a board or however. His name is John. And we realized, oh, wait a minute, this is John called the Baptist. John the Baptist, who Malachi said was going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. And so suddenly we learn from this couple that this baby born in Luke 2 is not just any kid. Not just any baby. This is Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the King and our Lord. Wow, maybe they should be in the story. And then last week we learned about Herod, Herod the Great, I don't know about you, but I enjoyed reading about Herod and, and learning a little bit, little bit about Herod. And Herod's not the kind of guy, though, you're going to find in your nativity set. Because Herod was a politician who started off as a pretty good guy, but turned bad real quick. And as a matter of fact, his, his, his heart became wicked. His heart became overwhelmed with wanting to gain control and keep control of his throne and all the extent that he would go through to hold on to the throne that he so cherished and it was good there to remind us how we too have this opportunity to make a decision about who's going to be sitting on the throne of our life and there's great danger if we like herod decide we're going to hold on to that throne and let nobody else have it we're going to gain control keep control there's danger in that. It cost Herod greatly. It cost him his family. It cost him in his life. We've got to be careful about that. Now, I'm pretty glad he's not in the nativity set. Well, today we want to continue the story. And I, and I, I want to point you today to not just one person who's missing from the nativity, but actually several people. I don't have a number for you. Could be a few, could be many. I, I'm not sure how to put a number on it. But today we're going to be talking about the citizens, the inhabitants, the residents in and around Bethlehem. We never see them in the story. We never see them in the nativity, do we? We never have this backlog or this group of people that are around the nativity looking in these residents of Bethlehem. But did you know there's a pretty unique group of people who lived in Bethlehem? Most scholars believe that probably at this time... Maybe at most 1,500 people or so lived in this sleepy little village village called Bethlehem or House of Bread. It was a little sleepy village some 10 miles away from Jerusalem and uh, not many people lived there, frankly. A few shepherds, how they earned their money, keeping watch over their flocks by night. We know that part of the story. But what about the residents who lived there? Think about those people. Now, I want to tell you One thing I'm sure about those people in and around Bethlehem, there were some of the residents who were joyous and ecstatic over the events that had just occurred. When they heard that this special baby had been born and laid in a manger, born in a cattle stall, and laid in the manger, when they heard that this was the Messiah, the one that had been expected since the prophets of old, I'm sure there was excitement in the town, and there were a part of the people who were excited about this Christmas, and every year when this time would roll around, they would celebrate and thank God that their city was so blessed. And I'm glad, because that's many of us today. Many of us today are so glad to be blessed, and when this time of the year rolls around, this time when we remember the birth and the coming of our Savior, our Lord, we are so excited, and, with, and it just bubbles up inside of us, and it's the holly jolly Christmas, right? And we deck the halls, and we have fun, and we just enjoy the, all the make-believe and the elves, and whether or not we're in the North Pole, right? We don't need snow. We can have fun. Christmas is a joyous time. I don't know if you realize it in Bethlehem long ago there were also some people who really hated to see this time of year roll around because they would remember this time of the year and they would remember the the high debt the high price the high cost that came to them as a result of Jesus being born in their town there was a high cost to be a resident in Bethlehem, particularly if you were young, and particularly if you had a young son. Because you see, there's part of the story we didn't read last week about Herod that we're going to look at this week that's disturbing. I told you last week just how evil Herod was. He killed his own son in law, he killed his mother in law, he killed people frequently, and as it was necessary for him to keep his throne. But what I didn't tell you last week is he also ordered the murder, the massacre of Jewish boys under the year 2, in the age of 2. I want to tell you why that happens. I want to unpack the story a little bit for you because maybe it's one you've heard, maybe it's one you haven't heard. Now, some of you, your Bible students, you know the story before I even go there. Some of you, may, you say, well, I don't know much about the Bible. Well, I want, to, I want to unpack the story for you and show you how this came about And then at the end, I want to hopefully answer the question, so what? What does it have to do with me? This happened 2,000 years ago in a city of Bethlehem. That's a long ways from me. What does it have to do with me? I think it has everything to do with us, and there's much we can learn. So take your Bibles, if you would, and join me by going to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible like this, maybe you have it on your phone or a tablet. Uh, in case you didn't, we have it on the screen. It'll be coming up in just a moment. And, but before it comes up, let me, let me backtrack just a little bit and say this. The whole point of what I want to go today and where I want to share today is this. I want to ask a question. Can we worship God? How can we worship God in a Christmas season when our hearts are broken, and our lives in turmoil, Or can we? Matthew's Gospel, chapter two, there's an incredible story. Follow along with me. I want to begin reading at verse number <clears throat> um, verse number, let me find it, 13. Verse 13. Here it says, "After they were gone." An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, hold on a minute. Let's do not read that too quickly. I, I don't want to assume you know what's happening here. After they were gone, who's they? They are the magi, the wise men, the astrologers. A group of men who had traveled afar, they had traveled from the, far, from the east, headed to Jerusalem. They come to Jerusalem, you know the story, on their camels or with their gifts. And you remember they came and, and they came to Jerusalem and they found Herod in his temple. And they came to Herod and they said, ah, so Herod... We've come from the east. I'm glad you're here. What did you come for? We've come to worship the king. We were watching the stars, and a new star appeared. A fresh star appeared. And it stood and has guided us to this place. And we've come because we understand that the king of the Jews has been born. And we've come to worship him. You remember? Herod's response was classic. Classic. Herod said, well, I'll tell you what, I don't know where this king is born, but I know who does. I, know, I remember reading it somewhere in the Jewish scriptures. You remember we saw last week that Herod tried to be religious. He pretended to be very religious to the Jewish community, and yet, in, in, in truth, his heart was so far from God. And by the way, that in itself is a little bit of a speaking point to us, isn't it? Because sometimes we play at religion, and our hearts are really far from God. We saw last week that God's never fooled, and He sees your heart, and He knows our hearts. He knows whether you're here today or whether you're practicing your religion as just a front, as just a face, as just something. He knows your heart. So Herod says, I'll find out. He called some, some of the Jewish scribes together, and he says, Now I know there's a prophet. I know one of the Hebrew prophets spoke about the birthplace of the coming Messiah. Where is that? So they pointed him to the writings of the prophet Micah. In our our Bible, it's Micah 5, 2. And in Micah 5, 2, we read these words. But you, Bethlehem, of the land of Ephrata, though you are least among the princes of the tribe of Judah, yet out of you will come one who will bless my people Israel. Aha. Herod says to the men, this king you're looking for, now remember, whoa, 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 Let me back up a little bit. Remember, Herod has been named by Caesar Augustus as king of the Jews. Pretty sure he's not happy about this whole situation unraveling. But he says to the men, this king you're looking for, the prophet said, would be born in Bethlehem. So go and find him. And when you find him, bring me word again so that I might what? Worship him also. Yeah, right. I'm pretty sure Herod did not have worship in mind. He had anything else but that in mind. He was going to work to secure his throne. So the wise men leave. They come and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger, just as the prophets had said. And they presented unto him, you know the story, the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now we come to our text. After they were gone, When the wise men left, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph has a dream. The wise men have left. Everything is great. The child is in the house. By the way... You you know what? Be careful not to read the scriptures too quickly. Notice this is a child. Is that important? I think it is. Because I don't think we're talking about being in a manger now. In fact, we learn that they're in a house. This is a child probably a year to two years later after the nativity in Bethlehem. But they're still in Bethlehem. An angel appears with a message in a dream. And what is the message? The message is... What? Go to Egypt. Get up, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now hang on there just a minute. This is fascinating to me. I hope it is to you, it's fascinating to me, that this angel speaks to Joseph in a dream. He says, "Get up, you've got to go to Egypt. Wake up, Mary. Pick up the bait, the child, and head to Egypt." Now first place, how many know it is not a fun thing to move somewhere in the middle of the night?" But he says, "You've got to pick up and go. You can't wait till tomorrow. You can't wait till next week. You can't make arrangements. You can't pack up. No, just pick up, go to Egypt. If I ask you a question? Why Egypt? Have you ever wondered that? Why Egypt? I've wondered that before. I've wondered if maybe, you know, if I were the travel arrangement, if I were the tour agent, I think I would probably say, why don't you go north to the Galilee? Why don't you go to Nazareth? It's your hometown. People there can help protect you. And after all, they'll never find you up there in those hills. But you didn't go to Nazareth. He didn't say to go to the part of the desert. Why not go hide in some of the caves like David did? That would have made a good hiding place. Why Egypt? Well, I think there's a couple of good reasons. First of all, Egypt had a thriving Jewish community. At this particular point in time, Egypt, the Egyptian city called Alexandria. Have you heard of Alexandria? Alexandria was named after Alexander the Great and Alexandria had become the second largest city in the Roman Empire. The most important city only second only to Rome itself. As a matter of fact there was a Hellenistic culture in Alexandria that was incredible. It was a mixture of Roman culture, Greek culture, therefore a Hellenistic culture Uh, The Jewish culture, as a matter of fact, most people believe, scholars believe, that up to a million Jews lived in the city of Alexandria from 30 B.C. on. So there's a large community of Jews who live there. So why not? Makes sense. Go to Alexandria. Go to Egypt. Now, I don't know for sure that he went to Alexandria, but quite likely... Alexandria was an important city with its Hellenistic culture. As a matter of fact, some believe, most believe, that the Septuagint. Have you heard that word? That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Septuagint, many believe, was written in Alexandria. So why not go there? We don't know. But I think more importantly, there's a, geogra- there's a spiritual reason. Think about this. They're going to Egypt. And Matthew points out, That in doing so, they set up the prophecy, the fulfillment of a prophecy from a man named Hosea. And Hosea wrote in his prophecy, and he quotes it for you, Out of Egypt I called my son. In our Bible, it's Hosea 11.1. You can read it sometime later. So Hosea has said, out of Egypt, I'm calling my son Messiah. Now, you know what? I'm sure there were a lot of Jews who scratched their head at that and think, why would would Hosea say such a thing? That Messiah would come from Egypt. After all, Egypt was a hated place by the Jewish people. You know why, don't you? Because Egypt is where they were held in captivity for 400 years. They were slaves for 400 years. And so when they thought of Egypt, they only thought of their slavery. But then, on the flip side, the good news is, God did send Moses. And when he sent Moses to Egypt, Moses came out of Egypt with 2 million slaves with him. And his journey, his exodus, took the Egyptians, I mean the Hebrews, out of bondage to the Egyptians and into a land of promise called Canaan. My, my, what a beautiful picture of our Savior Jesus who went down into Egypt but whom God brought out of Egypt and in doing so paved the way for Jesus to bring all of we who are slaves and captives to sin and death into a land of promise, into a position where we are reconciled with God and able to live with Him in heaven forever. Now, that might not excite you, but that just makes me want to turn somersaults. That's pretty good stuff. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But he said, go down to Egypt and stay there. Because Herod is going to try to kill you. Try to kill your son. Herod's going to do everything he can to snuff you out. Now, that's not encouraging. But it happened. Look at the next verse. We read a little further. Verse 16. Then Herod... When he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men. Remember he said to the wise men, "You go and you find him and you come back and when you come back tell me where he was, I'll go to worship him." After a few days he figured it out. All right. They found him, but they're not coming back. So what happens? He is filled with rage. He flew, I love the way the CSB says it. He flew into a rage and gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Wow. So, this ruler, this evil politician, Herod, who some labeled the great, goes into a rage. And he decides, I'm going to make sure that this king of the Jews dies. So he sends his henchmen into the city of Bethlehem, in and around the little village, sleepy village of, that we love so much, Bethlehem. And there's an awful massacre. And that awful massacre, all the Jewish boys, two years old and younger, die at the sword of Herod's men it's a horrible sight I don't know how many boys lost their life that night I I don't know some have guessed some have said thousands because it does say in and around Bethlehem others argue not too many after all, Bethlehem, if it's a town of 1,500 people, probably on average they might have, what, maybe 20, 25 children. And if you take half of them being just the boys, you're only down to 10 or 12. So, so maybe it was only 10 or 12. But, but here's what I know, and you know. It really doesn't matter if it was 10,000 or if it was 1,000. It really doesn't matter if it was 100 or 10 or even 1. If yours is the one, it doesn't matter. An evil massacre of innocent children. Oh, wait a minute. Pastor Eddie, you're bringing this into the Christmas story? Well, you see why it's a missing character. You, you see why we don't talk too much about that. But can you think a minute about Bethlehem and the residents of Bethlehem? Can you think about the people who are in and around Bethlehem and how they feel? Every time this rolls around, every time this time of the year rolls around, they're reminded of what? The horror of that night in Bethlehem? I can't imagine the grief and the pain i being reminded. Years ago, I read a, an interesting poem. It's, it's a poem written by John Piper. Some of you know Piper. Some of you don't. Piper is a, a pastor slash theologian um, who writes incredible material. But every year, Piper decided to write a poem. And one of the poems he wrote is particularly moving to me. It's called The Innkeeper. I don't know if you've ever read it, The Innkeeper. And what's intriguing is Piper wrote this, this uh, fictionalized, creative poem out of his mind about a visit between Jesus and the innkeeper in Bethlehem. Now here's what's interesting about the poem. Uh, just ignore that please. Take that off the screen please. Um, <clears throat> that would totally confuse you. It has nothing to do with what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Think with me just a moment. <clears throat> Piper tells the story of Jesus as he's approaching Bethlehem two weeks before his crucifixion. Now remember I said this is fiction. It's in his mind. It's a creative thing. but It's an imaginative process. Think with me just a minute how it must have been. Jesus coming to Bethlehem two weeks before his crucifixion and he visits the home of the innkeeper. Now here's what's fascinating about it. Think with me for a moment how that conversation might have went. After all, Jesus comes to the innkeeper, no doubt, and would say, according to Piper's imagination, tell me about the night of the nativity. And he must have listened closely as the innkeeper would recall to him that night when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem and there was no room for them in the inn. And so he he said, I offered them this stable. And I I was embarrassed a bit, but it was the only place I had. And and then Jesus hears the account from the innkeeper about that night of the nativity. And it must have blessed his heart if he had just stopped there. But in the poem, the innkeeper goes on to describe another night, sometime after that first night. And he recalls how the Roman soldiers would come into the town, storm the streets, knock down doors, bust through windows. He recalled the awful screams and yells of the two-year-old boys who were slain by the henchmen. In Piper's poem, Jesus looked at him, wiped the tears from his eyes and said, your son's death will be avenged because in two weeks I'll go to the cross, I'll die. Three days later, I'm going to rise and our enemy Satan and sin and death will be conquered once and for all. That's a glorious hope, isn't it? I wonder if it brought some comfort to the innkeeper that night to hear that once and for all, hope is coming, even amongst this heavy, heavy grief. Now, why in the world, Pastor Eddie, would you talk about a subject like this on a day when we ought to be happy and bright? Holly, jolly Christmas, deck in the halls. Because I know in a room this size and in the packed room that was here this morning and in the voices that will listen to the podcast, I know that there are some who, like the innkeeper, will dread to see this night come around because it's a constant reminder of the grief that's in our heart. And it's a constant reminder of loss that we've experienced or health that we've lost or a job that's played out or a condition where we can't do what we would like to do for somebody we love we can't give our children the full stockings that the other children get I don't know what it is but there are times that in real life the fun and the excitement of elf is cut out and our hearts are filled with darkness and black and heavy and grief. It doesn't, doesn't bring me joy to talk about it except that it's real life. And our Bible does address real life. This Bible that we read, this story that we tell is real. Of all the make believe of Christmas, the one thing that's real is the gospel, the story truth, the hope that we have. I don't know if Piper's poem was true or not. I don't know if the innkeeper was one in Bethlehem, but I do know that many in Bethlehem cried that night and wept that night. Because look what the story says next. It says in verse 18, verse 17, I'm sorry, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, that's Bethlehem, weeping. And great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. He says even this, even this massacre of the innocents, even this grief and pain was all foretold in Scripture. Jeremiah spoke of it. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, is what he just quoted. But hang on a minute. You know what we discovered? Isn't this interesting? If you read the next verses of Jeremiah's prophecy, it shifts gears. Can I just go back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and read it? Here it is. Verse number 15 says, just what Matthew reported. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament, with bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah is saying there was grief, and there was sadness, and there was pain, and there was tears. But look at the next verse. This is what the Lord says. Watch this. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. Your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration. Your children will return to their own territory. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Isn't it amazing that Jeremiah the prophet declares... In the midst of your sadness, there's hope. In the midst of your tears, there's joy. I'm reminded of the psalmist who wrote these words. He said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I know that's hard sometimes to hear and to believe, but that's the message of Jeremiah. That's the message that he's trying to tell us. There is hope. There is hope. And that hope is in one who is far greater than you or me or anything that we see or experience or hold with our hands. Our hope is in a God who is our portion. There's another passage I want to leave with you, if you'll give me a moment. It's written also by Jeremiah, the prophet, it's not in the book we call Jeremiah, it's in the book we call Lamentations. And in Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah says something that I want to leave with this morning. I want us to hear this morning before we leave because it is so important. The book is called Lamentations. It is, it is, it is Jeremiah is crying out. Jeremiah, by the way, is called the weeping prophet because he weeps, he's crying Over the distress of Israel. He's he's weeping and crying in grief over his own condition. And so much of his book, much of his writing is about grief and crying. And and he writes this in the third chapter. After talking about his affliction, his depression, his sorrow, his grief. He lands in verse 22 of chapter 3. I didn't put it on the board because I want you to just hear it. You can go home and read it later. I want you to just hear it. Listen to what he says. He says, because the Lord's chesed in the Hebrew, because of his faithful love, chesed is the Hebrew version of the Hebrew equivalent of grace. Because of the Lord's grace, he says, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief, in the midst of heartache, he says, because of the Lord's grief, we do not perish. We're under attack. We're under strain. We're under stress. We're grieving, we're sorrowful, but we do not perish. Why? Because His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. I say, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in Him. Now, please don't tune me out just yet. I'm almost done. But I want to land this plane with this thought. Jeremiah says, I have hope. In in spite of incredible disappointment and depression and fear and anxiety and stress and grief and sorrow and crying, I have hope. Where do you get that hope, Jeremiah? Because I see the Lord and He is my portion. Now, this is going to sound so preachery. Is that a word, preachery? It's (laughs) going to sound so much like preacher talk that I'm almost afraid to say it, but it's true, so I'm going to say it anyway. What He's saying is the Lord is all I need, He's my portion. He's what I need for strength. He's all I need for peace. He's all I need for comfort. You see, today we tend to want to hold to things that we can possess and that we can hold near and that we can enjoy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then when they're taken from us, whether it's material things or relational things or we grieve. It's tough. We say, how are we going to make it? How can we worship God with a broken heart? How can we enjoy this Christmas season with heaviness in our heart? And only one thing that I can say, that I can figure, is we look to Him. He's our focus. He's my portion. And in the end, He's all I need. He is all and in all. Now, does that make the hurt go away? No, wish it did. Does that make the pain ease? No, wish it did. Does that make everything okay? Well, not in my heart. Is it true? Absolutely. I know if you're sitting out there today and you you don't know Christ, you've never met Christ and you're just learning about Jesus or you're just learning about God and maybe you're wondering I don't even know how God could do this to people and you're thinking that what I'm saying to you makes no sense that God could somehow be loving and, and compassionate and yet allow pain and grief in our world how, how, you, some of you are really struggling with that and unfortunately I don't have an explanation for you except to say I know it's real and that I have to believe the gospel that says we have hope in the midst of heartache we have hope and our hope is in the future our hope is in the provision of a God who is my portion whose faithfulness is known and whose mercies are new every day you know I think Jeremiah said it that way I think It's because in the depth of our pain, we need to hear from Him daily. We need Him in every moment of our walk. An old hymn I used to sing growing up, I need Thee every hour. Every hour, I need Thee. Never more true than this time of the year when our hearts... heavy and broken so if I have to land this plane for this week until we pick up next week I think here's the thought I would leave you here's what I would hope that we would take away it's simple but it's true when Jesus was born hope entered our world when Jesus was born hope entered our world until Jesus was born there was no hope there was only darkness there was only sin there was only death There was only heartache, there was only doom, there was only peril, and we had no chance. But when Jesus was born into the world, hope came. And the hope is that eternal God would love you and me so much that he would send his one and only son to die on a cross voluntarily so that he could say to you, like Pipers, Jesus said to the innkeeper, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to ascend into heaven and I'm going to become your intercessor. And I'm going to win. Once and for all. And sin and death will be defeated. Hmm. That's our hope. And may I just add this, and I promise I'll sit down. When Jesus entered my heart, I had hope. Because Jesus is in my heart, I have hope. Even when my heart is heavy and things aren't working quite the way I would like them to work. This morning, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life and enjoy the hope that he brings? Pray with me, would you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. (sighs) Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, I thank you for your steadfast love your mercy, your loving kindness. And God, we know that sin has distorted and sin has wrecked what you intended in the beginning. But I thank you that you didn't allow sin to win, but willingly gave your Son to come and to die That we might have hope. And I thank you, O God, for the hope that is ours today. Regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. Regardless of the pain that we feel, the grief that we experience, the hard, blowing days in our life. Thank you, God, for challenging challenging us with this message today. And I really pray that the Holy Spirit of God will bring hope to all of our lives. And that through this Christmas season that may be different, no doubt will be different than others, we keep our eye on our portion, our King, our God, our Savior. And His great love and the victory that is ours through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Now just in the quietness of the moment before we sing. I pray that you would listen as God speaks to your heart. I don't know what he may be speaking or saying to you. I know what he speaks and says to me. But I would invite you to listen carefully. You say, how do I hear God? I, I think you hear him beginning begins in your heart. In your mind. Listen to what he's saying. Maybe you're here and you'd say, Pastor Eddie, I I need that hope. I need to fasten my eyes, as Jeremiah says, on the one who is my portion. And lean on his faithfulness today, not my own effort. Right now, you can invite him into your life and into your heart. I simply pray. By simply saying, God, I am tired of trying it my way. It has not worked. I I know I'm going in my own strength. I'm going going my own way. I'm coming to you today to turn from my sin, Lord. And place my trust in you. To quit trying to earn this thing and to just ask you to take my life just as I am. And live your life through me. And maybe you know Christ. And you know intellectually what we've talked about this morning. But you just need to know it now emotionally. You need to know it willingly. And maybe this morning, many of us just need to say, Oh God, thank you for being my portion. And keep me focused on you and your grace. Lord God, you know that my heart is burdened with the message today. But I believe that message, that burden has been placed there by you. And you've appointed me this morning to speak to your word let your word speak to us. Would you do through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of your word what I cannot do? Through my own convincing. And would you touch hearts and lives wherever we sit? We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.